The Granzadillo School of Business and Management at Pepperdine University proudly presents the Dean's Executive Leadership Series. This podcast invites top business practitioners and thought leaders to share their view on the real world of business. Hello and welcome. My name is Rick Gibson. I'm the Associate Vice President for Public Affairs here at Pepperdine University. And I'm delighted to be joined once again by Dr. Linda Livingstone, who's the Dean of the Grazadio School of Business and Management. Welcome, Linda. Thank you, Rick. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Well, we're nearly uh, halfway through or about halfway through the Dean's Executive Leadership Series this year. Tell us how uh, the uh, series has gone so far, some of the guests you've had, and then tell us who you can expect next. We had a great series. We started with a couple of IT folks from Hewlett Packard and Cisco. And then we just recently had uh, Kate Mitchell, who is in the venture capital industry. So a lot of variety and some really interesting insights in some industries that have changed a lot in the last few years. Right. And I, and I have a sense that your students are really benefiting from these conversations and, and, and having a chance to meet some of these people. Well, the students love this experience. They talk about a lot of these companies in their classes or talk about these industries. So to hear the leaders in those industries in person is a wonderful experience for Mm -hmm. them. Well, your next guest is Paul N. Hopkins. He's the chairman of the board of Farmers Group Incorporated and chairman of America's Zurich Financial Services. And uh, tell us a little bit about your guest. Well, we're really excited to have Paul with us for a couple of reasons. Uh, Clearly, there's a lot of change going on in the insurance industry, partly because of the financial crisis and partly because of all of the changes in the healthcare industry. So Paul will give us some real insights into where he sees that going and what the challenges and opportunities are that they face. But we're also really pleased to have Paul with us because Farmers Insurance Group actually uh, supports our Dean's Executive Leadership Series and has several years. So we're really pleased to recognize him and have him with us. Yeah, very good. Well, we do want to invite our listeners to sit back and enjoy this interview and this conversation with Paul N. Hopkins. Well, we're glad to be here today with our Dean's Executive Leadership Series and are really pleased to have with us Paul Hopkins, who's chairman of the board for Farmers Group Incorporated and chairman of the Americas for Zurich Financial Services. And it's particularly a pleasure to have Paul with us because Farmers has sponsored our Dean's Executive Leadership Series for a number of years. So we're really pleased to have you with us. Well, thank you very much. And and speaking on behalf of Farmers in Zurich, we're very pleased to be associated with Pepperdine and very proud to be able to sponsor this series. Well, uh, most people probably don't know that Farmers has had a very long history with Pepperdine because John Tyler, the founder of Farmers Insurance Group, also was connected to Pepperdine in its early years. And we actually have a road on campus named for him, John Tyler Drive. So uh, so it certainly isn't a recent relationship. It's been going on for many years. Yeah, it has been going on for many years. And I, I did a little homework. Uh, <laughs> you know, the first time I saw the beautiful campus uh, of Pepperdine, which is now about 25 years mm-hmm. ago, it wasn't lost on me that I saw John C. Tyler Drive and obviously recognized him as, as one of the founders of Farmers. Um, yeah, the the um, relationship between George Pepperdine and John C. Tyler goes way back, uh, back when Farmers was just opening its headquarters down in Mid-Wilshire, and I think Pepperdine's campus was still in downtown Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. I think their friendship struck up, and uh, over the years, the Tyler family uh, has been at the heart of a lot of fundraising uh, for Pepperdine and establishment of this campus, which I think is how his name found itself 
itself uh, on, on the uh, road and the campus here. And then also, I think they have a pretty substantial endowment that the families provided so uh, so many students can enjoy this this great campus. And um, a lot of uh, a lot of children of farmers uh, employees mm-hmm. uh, have come to Pepperdine, utilizing uh, that financial support from the Tylers as well. So we kind of feel it's an extension of ourselves, and we're very proud of Pepperdine and farmers' relationship. Well, we appreciate that, and we have loved getting to know Faye McClure, who is a vice president of strategic marketing and on our board of visitors and a graduate of Seaver College. And so uh, I know that uh, she does a lot for farmers, but she's been a wonderful addition to our programs here at Pepperdine as well. You know, when I have an opportunity to address the broader group, one of the comments I'll make about Faye, which I I genuinely believe, is I think Faye epitomizes the values that I've come to know Pepperdine graduates for. It seems that at Pepperdine, your focus is not simply on putting good educated people uh, into the world, but people with a mission to give back to the communities uh, in every way they can. And uh, honestly, of the 40,000 people working at Farmers or the 80,000 uh, working in Zurich, if I think of who the, the biggest net giver is, it, mm-hmm. it's Faye McClure. Yeah. And so we're very proud of her, and uh, obviously uh, you are as well. And, and everyone at Farmers knows she's a Pepperdine graduate. Well, good very, for her. Very proud of <laughs> we wish they would all be that outspoken <laughs> about it. It's great. Absolutely. Well, talking about sort of long relationships and long connections with organizations, uh, you have spent your entire business career at Farmers. Farmers, and that's an extremely unusual thing in this day and time. So talk a little bit about how that got started. Uh, you were an agent to begin with, uh, and what it is about farmers that has kept you connected for so long, uh, given that that's not the norm anymore. Right. Uh, very interesting start uh, with farmers. Uh, I went to uh, Eastern Illinois University in, in central Illinois. I grew up in a very, very small town. So to me, Charleston, Illinois, with a population of 15,000 people, was a thriving metropolis. So um, the whole notion of moving to Chicago or some large city, even larger, after I got out of the university, uh, was a bit frightening. But I, I met some people uh, from on a social occasion uh, that worked for farmers. They encouraged me to apply. So after I graduated, I did. And uh, it wasn't exactly what I was I was looking for at the beginning, to be perfectly honest, with all the people that, that I went to school with coming back saying they'd started with these top 50 companies and positions that seemed to be right next to the, uh, to the chairman of the board mm-hmm. at that time. And I had to come back and say, well, I'm working for an insurance company, quite honestly, that no people, nobody really knows in the in the Midwest. And uh, they asked me my first assignment would be, and said, I'm going to go out and sell insurance basically door to door for the first uh, six months of my life. And uh, um, I just enjoyed the culture so much. I thought the opportunity was so great. I knew that personally I wanted to migrate to the West, and this was a West Coast-based company. So maybe that wasn't all the right logic at the time, but it was honestly all the logic I had. And the longer that I was with the organization, the more of the family feel that I felt, and uh, the more deeply ingrained I got into the culture. And at this point, I have no regrets at all, and I'm really, really happy that uh, farmers accepted me uh, back in 1978. So what are some of those elements of the culture that have been so important to you both as an employee and then now as uh, in senior leadership and really directing the the vision and, and strategy of the company? Uh, that you want to continue to instill with the employees and customers? Well, I, I guess the initial connection for me, I mean, there's not a company or a CEO out there that doesn't want to refer to their organizations as being a family-like culture, et cetera. But, I mean, let's just be perfectly honest. Some are and some aren't. And, and you need some proof points to really show that if, if you are that type of a family-oriented company. I grew up very uh, a poor background. My, my father actually died just before I was born. My mother uh, raised my, my two siblings and I on 
you know, just an impossible budget. Uh, so the whole notion of family and helping one another was just something that I, that I grew up with. It was just part of my character. When I got to know farmers, I saw that same type of, of, of culture. Uh, it was people that grew up with very modest uh, beginnings that ultimately were able to uh, do quite well for themselves. They all had this point uh, of view of giving. Um, the whole nature of the insurance business, uh, while we get a lot of ridicule perhaps for what we charge and the bureaucracy, when you need us, when your house is burned down or you don't have a place to stay or your car is demolished or uh, something even more tragic uh, uh, in your life, um, you understand that the type of people that are in the insurance business truly are caring people who are there to try to help you out when you need it the most. So those are the type of people that, that I ran across uh, pretty quickly in Farmers and really felt that I had, I had found a home uh, with people that kind of thought about the world and how you treat other people uh, the, same, the same as I did. So the company's grown a lot. I mean, it's the third largest U.S. insurance provider. You have about 15 million customers. It's now part of Zurich Financial, which is a huge, about $70 billion in revenue company with mm-hmm close to 60,000 employees around the world. So how do you, in with the growth of farms and then under the umbrella of this really huge multinational company, continue to instill that sense of family and closeness? It's not always easy. Uh, Zurich is, has got its own very distinctive culture. It's a, almost a 130-year-old organization now. It's got a great deal of pride, a very strong culture. For the most part, uh, Zurich was uh, just in Switzerland, uh, and uh, therefore uh, it, it also has a lot of the same characteristics as Farmers does uh, in that, again, the proof points, I think, of are you really trying to uh, present your company as a uh, as a family is what really kind of separates you from everyone else. Well, at Farmers, for example, we actually encourage our the children of our employees to work here. A lot of organizations, most organizations are just the opposite. Uh, Our agency contract is unique in the industry uh, in that um, we actually encourage children or family members to take the business from the primary agent when they leave. So we have many agencies that are fourth and fifth generation now. That's the same way as it is at Zurich, Uh, just, uh, you know, uh, many, many miles from here and a different culture. But Zurich has grown to be the fourth largest insurer on a global basis. And so the culture isn't as tight as it was at that time. The unique thing is Zurich has a very strong respect for farmers and the success that we've had and the culture that we've had. We're one of the only organizations within Zurich that's been allowed to maintain its own brand of farmers rather than being rebranded Zurich. And we keep the leadership team separate enough uh, in running the insurance exchanges, which is kind of a unique model that we have, uh, that, that Zurich has agreed that the most effective way for farmers to prosper is not to become more Zurich-like, but to continue to own and operate its own distinct culture within farmers. And then any way that Zurich can add value through their global reach, their insurance expertise, the strength of their balance sheet, they are always there to help and assist us. And one of the things kind of your your leadership has been known for um, in in recent years is really devising and implementing growth strategies. So talk a little bit about how you approached that and what you have done to make that a successful strategy for farmers. 
Um, growth is key to farmers. Uh, it's key to any organization, but farmers went for about a decade uh, where we were really kind of stagnant. Uh, the, um, the U.S. personal lines insurance market in the U.S., uh, while the baby boomers were coming into fruition in the post-World War II era, was growing so rapidly that literally everyone in the marketplace got their kind of rightful share, if you will. When that started to slow, you had to be stronger competitively than you were before. We happened to be uh, owned by a tobacco company at that time, uh, which was not investing very heavily in us, and it left us with some pretty sub substantive vulnerabilities in terms of not being as competitive as we needed to be. So early on in, in my executive life at, at Farmers, I recognized that there was no one big um, home run that anyone was going to hit in a relatively commoditized market of personal lines insurance. And really the best way that we could create new ideas was not to go out and look for that one big one, but to create and foster an environment where all of our people who had interaction with all those 15 million households could give us constant feedback about what the iterative changes that we needed to make were and, and the fresh initiatives that we'd want to start and, and try to develop. Um, so it's really about creating a culture where it's okay for people to fail. It's okay for people to say, we can do better than this. We don't have an appetite for skepticism, but we have a very strong appetite at Farmers for constructive criticism. Uh, and that is not the way it always was. It certainly is the way that it, that it is now. So by creating an environment where everyone participates, Everyone is encouraged to come forward with their ideas, including their criticism, which might be the best source of really making that idea special. Mm -hmm, sure. And then when ideas don't work out, not shooting the messenger or, or being critical, but praising uh, the courage that they had to try and encouraging them to try again. So I, I think it's far more about attitude that keeps our pipeline of new initiatives fresh and always challenged, uh, far more than it is looking for one research and development function to come up with that one magic bullet that's going to push us in front of the competition. So is there any particular new initiative that's taken place that you were especially proud of or maybe didn't think was going to be successful and was that's sort of an interesting example of how that worked? You know, um, the, there's several, uh, and naturally I'm more than happy to talk to you about the ones that worked. Uh, <laughs> of course, those uh, are always uh, more uh, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Although sometimes you learn more from the ones that didn't work. Uh, well said. I have learned far more uh, in my failures in life than, than, than my successes. I don't think there's, there's, there's much doubt about that. But in terms of the successes, I think perhaps the one that was the biggest aha moment for me is, is we always, again, look for these long-range ideas or these things that are going to require such an enormous build out of infrastructure and investment and therefore higher risk. Probably the biggest uh, aha moment for me was the fact that we had really lost our way as an organization in terms of who the customer was. Mm -hmm. We were still using terms like emerging markets, et cetera, even here in Los Angeles, which is probably the most representative market of multicultural marketing or multicultural opportunities uh, anywhere in the continental U.S., so I think the biggest aha moment for me and the thing I'm the most proud of is when we finally woke up and said it is time for us to get back to mirroring the communities that we serve, both in who represents us as agents and claims representatives and who we actually pursue as customers. So our pursuit of the Latino and the Asian communities has been uh, well known. We've uh, taken Edward James Almos on as our spokesperson doing our first in-language commercials. Mm -hmm. uh, we've grown almost a billion dollars of market share uh, in that uh, multicultural market. 
And I think that it makes our people feel more comfortable with, with who we are as an organization because we're not trying to be exclusive or look for one certain type of person uh, or client. Uh, we are out there trying to give the best possible protection we can to all clients and really trying to speak the language of the customer rather than having them speak our language. That might seem subtle, but that's a pretty big breakthrough uh, in an organization our size, and I think it's something that makes us all very, very proud of inside the organization. Now, some of what I read in, in terms of background noted that you had gone out and looked at companies like General Electric and Procter & Gamble and others as you were thinking about how to drive growth. Mm-hmm. What did you learn or what were some of the particular uh, lessons from what you saw happening in companies like that that are very different mm-hmm. than farmers and an insurance company, but that informed and helped you think about how you went about this? You know, it, it's actually something that I touched on just a, a, a little bit earlier. Um, I went into it knowing that Procter & Gamble, GE, Cisco, others all had significantly invested more in research and development and had functions that were dedicated just to this and they were world class in that area. But it also wasn't lost on me that when you looked at some of their more innovative opportunities, they really came from the rank and file employees that weren't in that research and development function. They were from people that just had an enormous pride in their organization uh, and they felt like part of the solution and they wanted to be part of the solution. So our focus was to actually do both. We had to get much better at creating our own research and development uh, function and as we call our product divisions, and, and, and we've done that. But in addition to that, we've created this environment where we try to get everyone to participate, as I mentioned earlier. And uh, again, we, we try to celebrate the successes and still look for ways to find good even in the failures so that people feel uh, attached to the organization and feel that, um, that they can participate. This wasn't an easy task. Um, the insurance industry is a commoditized marketplace. Many of our people never touch the customer. They really don't know what we do. They read the same newspapers that you and I do, or we might be charged, we might be uh, accused of overcharging or providing poor service, uh, and just not looked at very positively. So to say that our people were really genuinely engaged and felt proud of working for the organization a few years back would be a bit of a stretch because you are what you eat, and everything they were digesting wasn't very good about us. So we tried to put an internal communication plan together, also something that I picked up specifically from Cisco and GE, about really having pride in the organization by understanding the good that we do do. And um, one of the things, uh, when I speak to the group a little later, I'll actually be showing a little video clip mm-hmm. of, uh, of us in action out uh, in, the San, or in the San Diego wildfires of a mm-hmm. few years back, utilizing these new super buses that we have that go out with all the technology to take care of the customers, et cetera, at the time they need us the most. And we utilized uh, uh, the videos that we shot of taking care of our customers and these buses on our internal communication systems so that everyone could start to live through what we were doing in Katrina with the customers and seeing how we were touching them and finding homes for people that would be on the street without us. Uh, and then several of the other catastrophes that have come along since then. This has gone such a long way to build a very strong pride in the organization, and I think as a leadership team has made us look more approachable and accessible, and therefore I think those are the things that I've taken from the world-class companies that I went to work on, that it's not about putting a specific part of your business in charge of your future. You have to make everyone proud to be part of it, and they will become your future. You mentioned some of the natural disasters that have happened that are 
obviously why we have insurance, but right. also uh, pose some challenges for the insurance industry. And as those were happening in recent years, both domestically and around the world, we also suffered through the financial crisis, which obviously had a significant impact in the insurance industry. So as you reflect on those last few years and the impact on the uh, on your industry and what's going on, how do you think the future of the insurance industry is going to look different than the past has looked because of some of these things that have happened. Yeah. Well, I always try to look for the, the optimism and, and things, but it, but I'll have to be perfectly honest. I'm very concerned about it, especially here in, in, in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, the United States has a relatively cumbersome regulatory system mm-hmm. uh, sitting on top of insurance companies, the state-by-state system. Now, I can't be overly critical of it because there were no significant insurance companies that went under during the recession, if you will, uh, foreign insurance reasons. Uh, we all know what happened with AIG, mm-hmm. and they're certainly looked at as kind of the centerpiece of, of everything else that, that unwound after it. But the products they were offering were not insurance products, and they weren't even insurance-related. They were credit default swaps and other things based more on the mortgage risk right. piece. And it's important to remember that, although most people knew, know AIG is the largest insurance company in the world and will therefore think that uh, insurance companies are systemically risky, uh, etc., which is really at the heart of my comments. While we have a cumbersome system today that I think costs all of our policyholders more money than it needs to because of the repetitiveness of having to do rate filings in 50 states and and all the research and minor product changes for all the different states, et cetera, we had for years focused on uh, regulation at a federal level Mm -hmm. that would allow us to have an optional federal charter where insurance companies like banks could be regulated either on a state level or a federal level, but not both. Mm I think that the crises has brought forth an environment where we're going to end up with both. There's no doubt that the uh, that there will be a uh, that there's already been established through the Financial Stability Office uh, and insurance czar. That person mm-hmm. hasn't been selected yet, but we will undoubtedly end up with both federal regulation and state regulation. During the next few years, when we're trying to determine uh, how the state and the federal regulators will work with one another, there's no doubt it's going to be pretty burdensome for the industry in terms of the data that we need to bring forward and how we need to present ourselves now federal regulators well. So uh, I do believe that because of the recession, I think the controls and the governance over insurers will will, uh, strengthen. I don't think it was weak to begin with. Uh, Again, we had no insurers fail uh, and look at the number of banks that did. But I do believe that it will become more burdensome for the customer, and I do believe that the rates will go up because um, insurance is basically a pass-through mechanism, and the cost will be passed through ultimately to the consumer. So uh, we're not sitting on our hands just letting that happen. We are actively in Washington. I'm there quite a bit trying to make sure that the right decision makers understand that there is a better way forward and that we can exist uh, effectively with both a federal and a state regulator, but we really do need to push forward on separating the duties rather than simply making them redundant. Adding another layer. That additional layer, well said, will will ultimately become a big challenge uh, for the person like you and I uh, who are customers of the insurance companies and pay the premiums. So obviously a big piece of this is the role business has to play in the public policy and the process. Uh, We have a school of public policy here. We actually have a joint program with the school of public policy, but I don't think that most business school students and most business people really understand, especially if they're in smaller businesses, 
the importance of paying attention to what's going on at the local and state and federal level. What have you learned in your years of doing this? And clearly you're doing it at a very high level, working with the federal government as well as the state, all the, you know, many state governments. What insights or advice might you give business people out there to sort of help them think about the role they should be playing uh, in terms of public policy issues? Well, specifically for the insurance industry, um, I think the insurance industry has to accept the responsibility that the reason that we have, will now have a federal regulator is because we haven't moved forward as an industry we, uh, and, and let our voice be heard. Uh, there's a high level of ignorance about insurance, both at the federal level and, quite honestly, uh, a lot at the state level. So we can't hide behind um, the fact that, that, as many people can, that their industry is well-known and well-understood. The insurance industry is not well-known, it is not well-understood, uh, and we're part of the reason why. So at least at Zurich and Farmers, uh, we've created very, very strong teams that are in every state that are out trying to educate uh, the decision makers, both the regulators and the legislators, uh, so that they understand not just what's coming forward from the consumer groups or what might be coming forward from the Trial Lawyers Association. Um, they both have good points of view, but if those are the only points of view and the insurance industry and who's speaking for the overall customers isn't heard as well, then of course we end up with, with regulation uh, that ultimately hurts the general consumer and hurts us in the middle uh, in the insurance industry. So it's very simple. Uh, we simply, uh, we, we made this bed, we have to sleep in it, but going forward, uh, every leader of every insurance company has to be passionate about having the right team and themselves being personally involved in educating every new uh, legislator and regulator that they can. We have 60 new members uh, of the House. Uh, we have been uh, working feverishly. I'm sure. Trying to educate uh -huh. those 60 before there's an insurance issue so it doesn't look like we're there for our own self-serving reasons right. with a specific issue, but to try to bring the broad knowledge of how important insurance is as a mechanism to society to avert the risk to allow us to have progress and success. And that's really lost on a lot of people that haven't been in this industry. Well, we've been talking about kind of the heavy side of what you right. do and the public policy. So let's talk about maybe the lighter side of what you do that also has important business implications. You all are well known in this region anyway for some of the sponsorships you do. Uh, you're a sponsor of the WNBA, Los right. Angeles Sparks. You sponsor some of the high school CIF championships. Um, and I know you were a sponsor of the, the NBA All-Star Weekend. Mm -hmm. uh, but also there's talk about building a farmer's field in Los Angeles. We have that, heard those rumors. I've heard that. We have and heard those same rumors. Like you, I'm from a small town, and I'm from Oklahoma and grew up on the farm, so I love the name Farmer's Field. I think that's <laughs> quite appropriate. So talk a little bit about that and what the vision behind that is and the implications you think it has for Los Angeles. Well, I, I think they're huge for Los Angeles. Uh, I've lived here since the, the late 80s. Um, I'm from St. Louis area originally, so it was a bittersweet when I saw the Rams leave. Uh, and we'd certainly like to see them come back, but please don't take that as any indication that I have any insight into what team uh, might be coming to Farmers Field in, in, in the near future. There's, it's a little broader story. Uh, honestly, um, farmers had not really ad advertised much. Uh, we had used our great agents to build the commanding market share that we've got, but the world's changed. Geico, Progressive, a lot of big competitors out there have advertising budgets that are 
larger than uh, uh, Budweiser, uh, Coca-Cola, etc. And then who would have thought that 10 years ago? But they've been very successful with it. So we all had to change our approach a little bit and and look at um, approaching the marketplace a, a little differently. At Farmers, we had about $13 million in total advertising budget only six years ago. Wow. <laughs> uh, this year, we'll spend about $350 million, still only half what some of our primary competition does. While we were going through this process, we had to start looking at events that really started to put farmers uh, in more of, um, of a sense of uh, top of mind awareness uh, for the consumers. So the uh, being involved in the CIF uh, and the high school sports has been a tremendous uh, asset for us. Uh, certainly the, our sponsorship of the Sparks uh, has, has been great. Um, just two years ago, uh, we had an opportunity when Buick dropped out of the Torrey Pines event mm-hmm. to take that over and make that the Farmers Open. Uh, this was our first full year to promote that, and, and that went over very well. Uh, we've also gone to airships. We have the world's largest airship that's mm-hmm. flying uh, flying over many of our events as well. And then finally, Farmers Field. Uh, in working with Tim Lewicki and AEG uh, for some time and a long time uh, Sweet owners at Staples Center. Uh, we knew the power of, of Staples Center and of the Lakers, and we also knew that the city of Los Angeles needed some help at the convention center, needed an opportunity to really make LA Live come alive mm-hmm. and make it uh, the big tourist attraction that it could. We also knew that this was a great opportunity for us to get our name out on a national level. We are very well known in the West, mm-hmm. very well known in the Midwest, but in the East, we're not. So you can imagine if Farmer's Field is playing in the future, right. all those East Coast cities, they won't look at us as we move into the East Coast as a newcomer. Mm-hmm. Instead, they'll look at us as a well-established brand from the West that has their own football stadium, big name on the West, and therefore will be able to attract the customer segments we're really looking for uh, that are more stable and more ingrained in their communities. So from a business standpoint, we think it's huge. Uh, from an opportunity for Los Angeles and our ability to give back, we think it's huge. We realize it's a long journey to get here, and there's a, a competi- uh, competitive bid or competing sure. bid out there as well. But uh, we think it's going to prevail, and we're very excited about it. Well, I know the city would be very excited about it if it could happen and bring a football team back to Los Angeles. Absolutely. Bring some new excitement. So that would be fabulous. And, and I would also bring up, it's, it's, it's far more than football. Oh, sure. Um, you know, with the addition to the convention center and uh, Farmer's Field being looked at as part of the convention center, I think we could look to Olympics, mm-hmm. uh, World Cup soccer events, uh, maybe the Republican Democratic National Conventions. I think it really allows Los Angeles to regain its, mm-hmm. its footing as a world-class stop for uh, any business travelers and any convention of any size. Mm-hmm. It really makes downtown LA the place to be, too. I think it does. Yeah, exactly. I think it does. Well, let me close with a question I ask everyone who comes to our Dean's Executive Leadership Series. Uh, Our mission in the business school focuses on developing value-centered leaders and advancing responsible business practice. So I always like to ask all of our speakers in this series what the two or three or four sort of key values are that drive who they are as a leader and why those are important to them. So we'll close with that question, Paul. Okay. Well, I'm sure mine would be much like uh, the, the folks, uh, the honored guests who have come before me, but you, you have to start with honesty, uh, honesty at every level. Uh, you just simply, everything that you do, uh, everything that you say, it has to be doing all the right things for all the right reasons. You are always under the microscope. 
Michael Josephson, a good friend of mine, who mm-hmm. says, unfortunately, you'll only be remembered for your last bad act. And, 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 <laughs> and, uh, and I unfortunately think that's the, the world we live in. But you just have to hold yourself to the highest ethical standards at all time and expect your people to do the same, and your audio and your video must match. You can't say one thing and do another. And sometimes that's very painful. Sometimes that's not understood. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you must communicate, communicate, and communicate, which starts with listening. And then it starts with making sure you have the right source and the right medium. And then you make sure you have the feedback that the message was indeed received. So for us at Farmers and for me personally, uh, I think that honesty uh, is the uh, certainly the biggest characteristic and trait that we have to continue to put forward. Sometimes honesty and honest messages aren't what people want to hear, whether they're our customers and we tell them that the claim's not covered, whether it's an employee who's not getting a promotion, or even worse. So honesty with compassion, Mm -hmm. Um, but honesty first, and then doing it and presenting your message in such a way that it really does pass the golden rule test, that it is the way you'd like to be treated, is exactly where we need to be. I think also um, it's very important that the leaders that we attract to our industry and to our business are not only honest and ethical, but they have that blend of IQ and EQ. Uh, there's not really a shortage in our marketplace of very bright people, mm-hmm. but there is a shortage of bright leaders. And for me, I think leaders need that balance of IQ and EQ uh, so that not only are they bright people, but uh, their emotional quotient also tells them the right thing to do at the right time. Uh, and it gives them a pretty accurate looking glass self of how others are perceiving mm-hmm. them. You give me a person who's equipped who's honest, has a balance of an IQ and an EQ, and I think I can show you a future leader, uh, perhaps this organization, certainly of mine. Well, Paul, it's been such a pleasure having you with us for the Dean's Executive Leadership Series. Thank you for sharing your time and wisdom with our listeners, and we certainly uh, appreciate so much the partnership with farmers that the Business School and Pepperdine have had through the years. So thank you for being with us. Thank you very much for allowing me to participate. On behalf of Farmers in Zurich, I couldn't be more proud. Linda, we certainly enjoyed that conversation with Paul. He had some great insights about what's going on in the financial industry and particularly as it relates to insurance. And so it was a great pleasure to have him with us. I I see the next time you have David C. Hendler on on, uh, the schedule. Tell us a little bit about him. Well, David is in the entertainment industry. He's the Senior Executive Vice President and Chief Financial Officer of Sony Pictures Entertainment. So our folks always love hearing from folks in the entertainment industry. But in addition to that, he's an alum and has actually taught for us some and serves on our Board of Visitors. So he's a a member of the Pepperdine family in many ways. Oh, that's excellent. Well, I know that our uh, listeners will enjoy that conversation as well. Let me invite our listeners, if they have interest in the Dean's Executive Leadership Series, to visit our website at bschool.pepperdine.edu slash DELS. That's D-E-L-S. Until next time, thanks for listening. True leaders inspire others around them to achieve. And leadership is a quality that we can help you develop and master. I'm Dr. Gary Mangifico, Associate Dean at Pepperdine University's Grazia Deal School of Business and Management. Our evening and weekend MBA program is designed exclusively for working professionals like you. Our curriculum, faculty, and highly collaborative learning environment give you a deeper understanding of your own unique leadership style. And though our regional campuses are only a short distance from your home or your work, you'll travel further than you ever dreamed possible. 
To learn more about our evening and weekend MBA program at our Encino, Irvine, West LA, Westlake Village graduate campuses, or our new Santa Barbara location, text INVEST to 30364. Pepperdine's Graziadio School of Business and Management. Master the leader in you.